uh, want to uh, refresh your memory about what we talked about uh, last time, um, about the kindness of strangers. Last time we spent a lot of time talking about kindness of strangers, and in many ways, um, as this as an instance of Faulkner updating um, a long tradition of thinking about hospitality, um, and also thinking about pregnancy uh, outside of wedlock, or even when, when you are in a marriage, that the father is, is not the father is not your husband. Um, so leader updating, uh, Lena updating leader uh, from, from 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 the Greek classics, uh, but also thinking about community and thinking about Lena's relation to the southern community as an updating southern hospitality as an updating of the ancient uh, Greek ideal of hospitality to strangers. So today we'll be um, thinking more about that, but introducing a new term um, and bringing Christianity into play. As you guys probably know, this Christianity is very important in light in August, um, and especially the Christian concept of how we should conduct ourselves towards our neighbors. Right? So we'll be thinking about that and the various permutations of that Christian idea of treat your neighbor as thyself. Um, and, but before we go into that, I just want to talk a little bit about the narrative structure uh, of uh, Light and Others. Obviously, uh, Lena is one very important half of the narrative. Uh, she represents the undramatic half of the narrative, very peaceful, very monotonous, the only way drama can come into her part of the story is when a supporting cast take over and they kind of upstage her and become the protagonist for this, just that short period of time. Um, so the undramatic narrative um, revolving around Lena and those people she comes into contact with. And then opposite to that um, is a very dramatic structure actually and we're beginning to see that uh, in the reference to Joanna Burden and the house being burned down and the spectator saying that it would be good to have some human fat meat to, uh, to, to quicken the fire. So um, very, very dramatic development and various other uh, characters also contribute to that dramatic narrative. So we'll be looking at Joanna Burden, uh, Reverend Hightower and obviously Joe Christmas. Um, so, but um, I just want to start by going back and looking squarely at this injunction uh, from Leviticus, um, which is probably the, you know, one of the central tenets of Christianity. Um, and we should take it, not just the last line, which is the line that all of us know, but take it in its full context. Um, you, should not, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So um, loving your neighbor is in the context of you obeying God, right? So that is the, that it is, it is under the rubric of your devotion to God, your obedience to God, um, that you should love your neighbor. But it's further um, thickened by the notion that you should not take vengeance against others. We might not necessarily um, think of the prohibition against vengeance. In fact, we don't really associate Christianity with the prohibition against vengeance. Um, there's just no prohibition um, 
in our current against vengeance and our current uh, legal and ethical thinking, um, punitive justice is an instance of actually collective vengeance, so it is institutionalized. There's no prohibition against vengeance, but actually within, at least in Leviticus, there's a prohibition against vengeance. So we have to think about what that means um, and, and putting that also under the rubric of loving your neighbor. So all of this um, is um, very important to light in August, but I want to further introduce one other consideration, which is a relatively new book that came up by three very important um, thinkers and um, philosophers, uh, Slavoj Žižek, um, Eric Sander, Sander and um, Ryan, Kenneth Reinhold, um, called The Neighbor. The three of them um, each had an essay in this book called The Neighbor. Um, and the argument is really thinking about what the concept of neighbor could mean after the Holocaust and after the numerous instances of genocide that we've witnessed in the 20th century and the 21st century. It seems that the whole human propensity is to turn against those among whom you've lived all your life. It takes such a short space of time. You know, generations of people might have been living together in the same place all of a sudden you turn against the person next door to you. So um, the three philosophers think of this as a case of political theology. It's a very interesting concept. Um, it's thinking about the ethics of social conduct, of behavior towards people who are not kin to you, um, who have no blood ties to you. Um, you have no obligation other than just the obligation of treating them as neighbors and what the appropriate conduct would be, what are the, the, the limits um, to being someone's neighbors and what are the licenses that you can take. Um, so um, very, you know, I would encourage you just to take a look at this book um, if you just want to do some reading in philosophy. Um, but I, now let's go back to what we've been talking about a little bit last time and just want to remind you of um, this um, discussion, this conversation that comes right at the heels of thinking about Brian Bunch being in love. It's a big fire, another said. What can it be? I don't remember anything out that way. Big enough to make all that smoke except that burden house. Maybe that's what it is. Another said, my peppy says he can remember how 50 years ago folks said it ought to be burned with a little human fat meat to start it good. Maybe your pappies lived up there and set it afire at first that they all laughed. Um, so this is the other phase of the community. Uh, with going along with Lena, we have this idea that human beings are just all kindness and that's all there is. But you know, we sort of just know from experience that that's probably just half the story. Um, so Faulkner is very emphatic about showing us the other phase of the neighbor of um, and um, and there's a genealogy to the burden house uh, in Kipling's poem, um, the white man's burden, um, that people who do good or consider themselves uh, to do good quite often actually incur uh, the resentment of those they do good to. It's an interesting kind of psychological dynamics um, that take up the white man's burden and reap his own reward, the blame of those you better, the hate of those you got. Um, I think that it actually is quite a natural human tendency not to want to be, you know, to have to get other people 
um, taking care of you uh, or in, in this particular way, uh, doing good to you. Um, and so resentment is actually a kind of a natural uh, reaction. And what the white man's burden means, uh, especially in the context of doing good to a different race. And obviously that issue it was front and center uh, during Reconstruction. Uh, when you have all the slaves becoming freemen and what to do and how to educate them and induct them really into citizenship. Um, so the lots of northern reformers went south um, and a lot of them, um, including Joanna Burden's family, had the idea that they would be uh, there to, they would be their social reformers and would be educating the ex-slaves. Um, but they also went by a different name in American history, and that is the name of the carpet bagger. And we can see a very uh, vivid illustration uh, of that. Um, the huge bag that is more than an appendage, really, is the defining feature of this person. Um, and there were many, many cartoons um, about um, how much they were resented in um, Pinsbell himself. So this is one image of how doing good, or the claim to do good, can actually benefit yourself. Likewise, the self groaning under the uh, burden of the carpetbaggers, an actual burden right there. Um, and I'm not entirely clear about the logic of this. You guys should just try to figure out an email, you know, email, or just write a blog about this, or email me if you can figure out the exact logic. Anyway, I mean, there's resentment there, but it's complicated. Um, so um, cartoons, political cartoons, can be really a great way to think about um, you know, just political history um, and social history, and certainly a very important background to light in August. Um, but what we now see is the outcome of that. Joanna Burden, as we know, uh, is still there as a do, someone who's doing good. She is on the board of multiple charities. Um, she gives money. Um, she has a black lawyer. Basically, she spent her whole life um, doing racial uplift, uh, working towards the welfare um, of the black population. Um, and this is what happens to her uh, at the end of that life. Uh, but the way that Faulkner is telling the story is actually the tone of, of that. It's very different from the tone that I just used. She was lying on the floor. Her head had been cut pretty near off. Oh, this is, um, as is the custom in Latin August, um, a very dramatic episode is rendered to us, is retold to us by someone who was there, but not a central player um, in the story. So this whole discovery of Joanna Burden's um, body was reported by Byron Bunch to Hightower. And Byron wasn't there to do the discovering either. He was reporting what a countryman who was a total stranger and coming to town in a wagon, you know, a total stranger, um, being given this important function of discovering Joanna Burden's body. So this is this countryman from nowhere um, telling this to, um, telling about the event. She was lying on the floor. Her head had been cut pretty near off. A lady with the beginning of gray hair the man said how he stood there, and he could hear the fire, and there was smoke in the room itself now, like it had done followed him in, and how he was afraid to try to pick her up and carry her out because her head might come clean off. So he ran back into the house, 
and up the stairs again and into the room and jerked the cover off the bed and rolled her onto it like a sack of meal. And he said that what he was scared happened because the cover fell open and she was laying on her side facing one way and her head was turned clean around like she was looking behind her. And he said that if she could have just done that when she was alive, she might not have been doing it now. Okay, Faulkner is actually repeating himself, right? It's the same kind of construction that Lena used when she talks about herself climbing out of the window for the last time. It was a little difficult that time, but if it had been that difficult from the first time, she might not need to be doing it now, right? So it's exactly the same structure. Um, what is weird um, is that even in Lena's case, even though you know it could have been seen as a totally unfunny story, it's told in a funny way. Um, and this episode is, it's really hard to see how it could be funny in any fashion except for the way Faulkner has chosen to tell the story. So this is something very deep in Faulkner um, that his temptation, um, his compulsion, is to tell a tragic story from a comic point of view and we can speculate about why this is such a pattern in him. Um, but I think that he really doesn't want to give tragedy um, the entirety of the feel. You know, if we can think of the narrative feel um, as either full occupancy or half occupancy, tragedy is granted no more than half occupancy of the narrative feel at any given moment. Um, and maybe it's not even half, maybe it's <laughs> here it seems to be less than half. Um, so here's the countryman, you know, worrying about all the things that one really shouldn't be worrying about when you're <laughs> discovering a dead body. Um, and the, the con very contrived plot detail that Joanna's Burden's head is turned around, so that she's looking backwards. And it turns out, turns out that there's actually a very um, venerable uh, genealogy to that particular configuration of a dead human body or human head in relation to the rest of the body. It turns out that the epic is coming into play as well because um, in a divine comedy in Canto 20, it's a very famous episode of um, Dante and Virgil um, going to hell and you know seeing all these people in hell uh, being punished and Dante's way of punishment is by the logic of contrapassal, that the punishment is a repetition of your crime. So this is what he sees, um, a whole group of people with heads turned around. As I incline my head still more, I saw that each, amazingly, appear contorted between the chin and where the chest begins. They had the faces twisted toward the haunches and found it necessary to walk backward because they could not see ahead of them. And um, this is an illustration, um, a Flaxman illustration of the, all these people in hell, their heads turned backwards. And the reason that they are punished in this particular way um, is that in life they were soothsayers, they claimed to be foreseeing the future. And of course in Dante's cosmos, uh, this very quite severe Christian cosmos, 
unlike the, 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 the Greek tradition, human beings are not really supposed to know anything about the future. For knowledge um, is not a privilege that human beings can claim. So as a consequence of claiming for knowledge of the future, these people are punished in hell by having the has turned backwards. Um, and we can also think of Faulkner in many ways thinking of this as a fit punishment for social reformers. Social reformers also claim to have some kind of privileged relation to the future, and they're reforming the present, you know, quite often, uh, because they have this vision about the future they want the present to approximate the vision of the future that they can see. So um, maybe that is the, the connection between Joanna and these um, ancient soothsayers. Um, but the, the, so there's a kind of a thematic connection, but the tonal connection is, is, is different. Um, if we think about Dante's um, incident um, in a divine comedy, um, there's just it's, it, there's no humor in it. It's a terrible sight to see all the people uh, with their heads turned backwards. And likewise, in this representation, there's nothing funny about this. It could have been done in a funny fashion, but it's never done in a funny fashion. Whereas Faulkner's representation of Joanna is definitely comic. Um, so it seems that every time, any time Faulkner invokes uh, a kind of uh, an analogy uh, from a prior text is always rewriting the text and changing especially the tone of that episode. Um, but so from Joanna, we get a kind of complicated picture um, of the malice of neighbors. Um, well, I mean, actually, she's not killed by her neighbors, as we'll find out. Um, so even though the neighbors are kind of rejoicing and having a lot of fun over the fact that she's killed and that her house is burning down. Um, even though they are enjoying it, um, they actually not the instruments for her killing. So that's important to remember. Um, and also that Faulkner, for some reason, chooses to approach it from a very odd angle so that it's not exactly sympathy that Faulkner is trying to generate from the reader. We can try to we should ask, you know, what kind of reader's response, response he's, 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 he, he's cultivating in that particular episode, but it's definitely not sympathy for Joanna. Um, so that puts us in a very peculiar relation as well, because in some sense, we are the neighbors to Joanna, right? We are just like those neighbors who are having some fun at her expense we, the readers, are also having some fun at the expense. So that is the, 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 the kind of narrative that Faulkner is, is, is giving us. Um, but to move on to the next figure, who also um, enacts a kind of dance, a permutation um, of the various meanings of neighbor. And this person actually is given more space in terms of this full development uh, of the various incarnations of the concept of neighbor. Um, so this is the Reverend Hightower um, who um, came to town and then all of a sudden he's loses his, his, um, he loses his job as a minister um, and um, then rumors start going around about his relation with blacks as well. Um, and this is what happens to him one night. Because that evening <clears throat> some man, not masked either, took the Negro man out this is the cook, took the Negro man out and whipped him. And when Hightower waked the next morning, 
His study window was broken, and on the floor lay a brick with no tie to it, commanding him to get out of town by sunset in San And he did not go. And on the second morning, a man found him in the woods about a mile from town. He had been tied to a tree and beaten unconscious. So this is exactly the same people, the same people who um, were kind to uh, Lena, probably were all clansmen. Um, you know, it's quite a common, um, it's, it's, it has a very deep roots actually in some southern communities. Um, and lots of people were clansmen that you might not think would be clansmen. Um, new studies also have shown that actually lots of women uh, were clansmen as well. Um, so um, we, we just don't know uh, who uh, within in this case was just a man. But what is interesting, there are actually two interesting facts um, about this. One is that the men are not mass. I think that that says a lot. That actually, um, in, in any kind of clan action, um, the people would be hooded, so you don't actually see the faces. But these, this variation on that, these men are not hooded, they're not masked. So that's very important. They're revealing the identity fully to Hightower. Um, and then the other detail is that, obviously, they want Hightower to leave town, and he does not go, even though he's beaten unconscious, he still refuses to leave. So these two are the very important variation to the customer's story about clan violence, and we'll see what comes from that. That Faulkner is both giving us a kind of very recognizable Southern history, um, but also he's giving us a very important variation on that Southern history. So let's look at, follow the kind of the permutation of the malice of strangers. He refused to tell who had done it. The town knew that that was wrong, and some of the men came to him and tried again to persuade him to leave Jefferson for his own good, telling him that next time they might kill him, but he refused to leave. He would not even talk about the beating, even when they offered to prosecute the man who had done it, but he would do neither. He would neither tell nor depart. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing seemed to blow away like an evil wind. It was as though the tongue realized at last that he would be a part of his life until he died, and that they might as well become reconciled. So this is the crucial, different story that Faulkner is telling about Southern history, is that the malice of your neighbors is the starting point it is not the end point. Um, it would be too easy, too much of a cliche to say that these people are just bigoted um, and they're going to um, persecute anyone who's not of the same mind. It would be much too simple to say that. So this is the very important variation is that the men are not masked. They fully, they let, they put it within Hightower's power to report on them. And the town is in fact ready to prosecute those men. Um, so, in fact, the legal, um, you know, this, the, the legal action is about to get started, um, and certainly there's actionable violence. But just as the, those people uh, who were who beating Hightower put it within his power to report on him, he refuses 
to use that power that they've put into his hands, right? So this is a strange kind of symmetry. This is the, for me, this is the most um, interesting and compelling kind of reciprocity that you put yourselves in the power of someone that you hate and you don't use the power that those whom you hate or those who hate you have put vested in your hands. Um, it's very, given the fact that there's so much violence going on, this is actually an incredibly delicate ethical gesture um, on both the parts. And I would say that this is, um, you know, I don't know how, <laughs> I mean, maybe this is too utopian. Uh, I'm just reporting to you, this is what, what I think Falkland is doing, um, that this is the way that he would like to tell the story, and this, this is the way that he hopes that human beings would conduct themselves under those circumstances. I should also point out that actually, there's a, in, the, in the book that I mentioned earlier, The Neighbor, um, there's a, actually a strong argument um, in favor of ethical violence, that sometimes you just can't help doing violence to someone, um, but how to be ethical about that. So for me, this actually is an instance of ethical, I mean, qualified, highly qualified, but nonetheless, ethical violence. Um, and I think it's because of that, because this actually, this is violence within limits. Um, it is violence that actually has a degree of lawfulness to it, in the sense that the law is going to pros prosecute them. And those perpetrators actually have put themselves under the, the, the jurisdiction of the law. Um, there's a degree of lawfulness to that kind of violence. It's because of that. But I think that Hightower actually has this to say about his neighbors. Hightower said, they are good people. They must believe what they must believe, especially as it was I who was at one, who was at one time both master and servant of the believing. And so it is not for me to outrage the believing, nor for Baron Bunge to say that they are wrong because all that any man can hope for is to be permitted to live quietly among his fellows. So this is one kind of idea, is that you can't really change the way people, what people believe about you. You know, they, have, they can have all kinds of wrong beliefs about you. There's no way you can change those beliefs. There's no way you can change how some other people feel about you. Feeling is not something that you can dictate in other people, and if they happen to hate you, there's nothing you can do about that. So that is a very um, tough-minded evaluation of the primacy of certain kinds of sentiment that are not pretty, uh, that do not make for harmonious relations among human beings. And hatred is a very powerful reality for Faulkner. So you know, you just have to live with that, that some people just don't like you all that much. Um, and given the fact that how can you still manage to live quietly and peacefully among people who don't like you all that much, that is the ethical challenge for Hightower. So all of this suggests that for him, for now, at this moment, on page 75, Hightower um, is the voice of a certain kind of ethical norm in Faulkner, um, and it's not surprising that his name is Hightower. You know, it's almost kind of too, a very elevated, very high kind, maybe impossibly high kind of ethical norm. Very few of us actually can behave as he does at this moment. 
Um, but I think that we should also be aware that Hightower actually doesn't occupy that moral height all the time. Just as the narrative feel is quite often a feel of half occupancy. <coughs> Nothing can fully occupy that feel. Moral elevation is also a place where you can't have full command all the time. So this is a sudden different image of Hightower from the town's point of view, people who don't like him all that much, what they think about Hightower. But the town said the Hightower, that if Hightower, and this is not talking about his black cook anymore, not talking about the violence, uh, but talking about something else that is also quite, two other things about Hightower. One is that he seems completely fixated on the Civil War. He seems completely fixated on his grandfather's death during the Civil War. The horses galloping, that is the reality for him. And the other, his wife is going crazy um, in that marriage, um, and he doesn't seem to be able to do anything about it. So this is the town's commentary on those two other aspects of Hightower's life, and you can see why he doesn't have full command of the you know, ethical elevation that we've just seen him in. Um, but the town said that if Hightower had just been a more dependable kind of man, the kind of man a minister should be, instead of being born about 30 years after the only day he seemed to have ever lived in, the day when his grandfather was shot from the galloping horse, she would have been all right too, the wife. But he was not. And the neighbors would hear her weeping in the parsonage in the afternoons or late at night. And the neighbors, knowing that the husband would not know what to do about it because he did not know what was wrong. So all of a sudden, the neighbors have been transformed from the perpetrators, perpetrators of violence to an independent voice of judgment on Hightower and on the marriage. Um, they're functioning more like a Greek chorus in the sense that they have some knowledge about the marriage that is denied to Hightower himself. Um, and so we should not forget for a minute that a man who has so much, such a delicate ethical understanding of a certain kind of situation, having to do with violence that is done to himself, can be completely blind um, in another situation when it would have been good for him to have been just a little more sensitive, right? So it's the other lack of sensitivity um, in Hightower that qualifies his claim to that ethical height that we've seen earlier. It doesn't, it's a totally different issue. It doesn't take away from the, the beating, doesn't take away from the clan action, but it does suggest that Hightower is a divided figure. Um, and he doesn't speak for Faulkner all the time, that Faulkner is actually using his neighbors sometimes to pass judgment on him, just as he is a dispenser of judgment on others. Um, so this is neighbors in a different light. And, but there's yet another twist. So Faulkner doesn't stop. I mean, this is a constant uh, switching back and forth. Um, the swing of the pendulum from the right being on the neighbor's side to the right being on Hightower's side, injury being done to Hightower. So this is neighbors in um, yet another light. Within two days, um, this is a little bit later, Hightower's trying to deliver a black baby. Baby dies, um, and within two days, rumors were 
going the right time. Within two days, the widows who said that the child was high towers and that he had let it die deliberately. But Byron believed that even the ones who said this did not believe it. He believed that the town had had the habit of saying things about the disgraced minister, which they did not believe themselves. So this is yet another interesting portrait of how people behave as a collectivity. That as a collectivity, we tend to th say things that we do not actually ourselves individually believe in. This is the nature, quite often, um, of rumors of, you know, or just kind of uh, standardized uh, statements about a certain situation. Um, that you just repeat a certain line. This is the nature of a line that is fed to all of us and that we would mouth without thinking about it. Um, and all of us do it, you know, it's not just, it's not just people living in a small town. All of us tend to say certain things that we haven't actually personally thought about, um, including damaging things that we can say about someone like having a child and allowing the child to die. So this is the, the nature of rumor and Baron's insight um, and he knows these people very well, is that in one sense, it is speech that seems hurtful, but actually doesn't have personal malice in it. So we have to be very dis careful to distinguish that hurtful speech can certainly inflict injury on the person that that speech is about. It can inflict injury. But something can inflict injury without having a lot of personal malice in it. And that is the crucial distinction that Byron wants us to make. <coughs> so we can see that constantly things are switching back and forth, right? So we've been talking about this since uh, Tuesday, you know, the protagonist and supporting cast, constant switch, background, foreground, dark and light, you know, light in August, dark house, the other title for the novel. Kind and unkind neighbors, dramatic narrative versus undramatic narrative. But the, all of this is coming to head in the switch between Lena Grove and Joe Christmas. And <coughs> this is a very interesting uh, narrative innovation on the part of, uh, of, the part of Faulkner. Um, we've seen in um, the Sound of Fury that it is a four-section novel, right? In, as I lay dying, many, many, too many to count sections, completely split into tiny little narratives. Um, and in this uh, novel, um, it's really two, the story of two people who are strangers to each other. Um, you know, it's a really huge challenge how you could tell a story about two people who have no connection uh, to each other, uh, but make the two stories one novel. So um, we'll see how that is played out and whether Faulkner is completely successful in making those two, um, turning these two into a single uh, story. Uh, but today we'll look at part of what he's trying to do, I think, and look at the contrasting functions um, of Lena Grove and Joe Christmas in this novel. Um, obviously, we know that one is a positive catalyst for the community. Um, all the good things about that community come out uh, when we see Lena Grove in action. 
and all the bad things uh, about Joe Christmas, about the community, come out when we see uh, Joe Christmas's story. So one is a positive catalyst, the other is a negative catalyst. But what is odd is that even though this seems to be put them to be on opposite end uh, of the narrative spectrum, quite often Faulkner also uh, contrives to make them meet as well. So it's a very interesting kinship, actually, between the two of them, even though they seem so different. So we'll talk about the linguistic kinship and also the fact that both of them seem to be passive receptacles for, for what is coming to them. So first, uh, we know, I think you know this, but just want to <laughs> repeat it. From Lena, this is the story. Folks have been kind. They have been right kind. It is a very monotonous story. This is, she, and in that sense, she's not a very great character to, um, not a f completely helpful character to Faulkner because she only knows one thing, um, and the story never changes. Um, so it, it's, it, he really has to introduce a kind of a counterpoint to Lena, um, whose very name already precipitates a negative response from the people who are finding out, um, hearing, learning about his name for the first time. So these two have fallen. Um, and his, his, Joe Christmas is just getting a job from these people. His name is what one said. Christmas, is he a foreigner? Did you ever hear of a white man named Christmas? The foreman said, I've never heard of nobody at all. Name it, the other one said. So just to have the name Christmas, and you know, I can't really think of a name that is less neutral, less innocuous uh, than the name Christmas. Um, but even for us, I think to hear someone called Christmas, you know, there will be a kind of strange response from most of us. And sure enough, there's a strange response from these two people. Um, so why is it that, in fact, that we are not entirely immune from that? Um, you know, it's not as if the world that Faulkner is creating is completely apart from our world. I, mean, I think in many ways we're part of that world. Um, but we've suddenly seen an extreme reaction um, from these two people. All of a sudden, it becomes, nobody has ever thought of him as being a foreigner. Suddenly, he's got to be a foreigner. Even worse than that, even foreigners don't have a name like Christmas. So maybe he's non-human. Um, not quite that. But he suddenly is in an unclassifiable, uh, but negatively unclassifiable category. Um, so let's, and the rest of the story really plays out the consequences in many ways of having a name like Christmas. Um, but for now, I want to actually to, not, not to go there yet, but to um, talk about a very strange kind of kinship um, between Lena and Joe, who otherwise seems so different, um, is a completely counterintuitive kinship, but I think it's also quite deliberate. So let's just go back to this passage that we talked about last time uh, about Lena's peaceful journey. Behind her, the four weeks, the evocation of far is a peaceful corridor paved with unflagging and tranquil faith and people with kind and nameless faces and voices. This is the nature of um, Lena's journey. And oddly enough, the same kind of language is used again at a very different moment in the story for Joe Christmas, when he's actually just about ready to do the killing. 
Maybe I have done it. Maybe I have already done it, he thought. Maybe it is no longer now waiting to be done. It seemed to him that he could see the yellow day opening peacefully on before him like a corridor and arrest into a still chiaroscuro without urgency. It seemed to him that as he sat there, the yellow day contemplated him drowsily like a prone and somnolent yellow cat. He would not move apparently arrested and held immobile by a single word which had perhaps not yet impacted his whole being suspended in quiet and sunny space so that hanging motionless and without physical weight seemed to watch the slow flowing of time beneath him. It is exactly, one could have just put Lena right in there and it would have been a description of her journey. Um, so as I hope that it makes no sense to you, but Faulkner would want to use this um, for Joe Christmas right before the moment of violence. Um, I think that it's, it's, it, it is um, it's, it's something that cries out to be interpreted by the reader, you know, why there should be the du duplication um, of the once appropriate language for Lena into this completely inappropriate and counterintuitive context. Um, but all we can say is that this is a quite heavy-handed uh, attempt on Faulkner's part to generate a linguistic kinship between the two of them. Um, let's look at another instance, and in fact we um, see it a little bit um, in the use of gerunds um, in talking about this moment of impending incipient violence when he is held suspended but very peaceful. Um, and so this is the, the use of gerunds, and we've seen that in Lena as well. That far within my hearing before my seeing, I will be riding within the hearing of Lucas Bush before his seeing. He will hear the wagon, but he won't know. So there will be one within his hearing before his seeing, and then he will see me, and he will be excited, and so there will be two within his seeing before his remembering. Completely highly conspicuous use of the germ. Um, and there's also a parallel highly conspicuous use of the germ for Joe Christmas, knowing, not grieving, remembers a thousand savage and lonely streets. The same use of the German, but in a completely different context and completely different thematics. Um, so we really have to think a little more about why it is, even though the two of them seem polar opposites, that Faulkner nonetheless sees and is emphatic about the kinship between the two of them. So um, maybe one way to think about this um, is to, once again, is to um, think about um, the relation between an individual and a collectivity, or at least various representatives of that collectivity. Um, and with Lena, we've seen that um, she really is a passive receptacle for all the Southern hospitality that is coming to her. Uh, and maybe that's why she's really not that interesting on her own, that it really takes action from other people to vest her narrative with any kind of action at all. Left to her own devices, there will be no story to tell, really. Um, and so she's a passive receptacle in the sense that she's really the narrative device by which a community gets to tell a story, by which a the action of a community gets dramatized and gets registered 
uh, within a compass of a single individual. And I would say that that is also the narrative function of Joe Christmas as well. That in many ways, even though he's probably more psychologically complex um, than Mina, and it would be interesting to think about what kind of psychology he has, in spite of the complexity of his psychology, he has the, a similar narrative function in the sense that he is the vehicle by which somebody else's action, somebody else's drama gets registered. So he is the template on which someone else writes a dramatic narrative. Um, so this is his, the continuation of that peaceful moment when he's about to do the killing. He just sat there, not moving, until after a while, he heard the clock two miles away strike 12. Then he rose and moved toward the house. He didn't go fast. He didn't even think, even then, something is going to happen. Something is going to happen to me. Right? It's that syntactical construction. Not I'm going to do something, but something is going to happen to me so that I will actually kill someone. You know, is that that bizarre transformation of what would have been a very familiar sentence. Um, so this is the even the most dramatic action that he's that he's responsible for is cast as something that's happening to him without his volition almost. Um, and we've seen that this is actually the a logical combination of a pattern that has been the dominant pattern all through his life. So it goes back, this moment goes back to when he was a kid, um, when he was watching, when he was hiding and eating toothpaste um, in the closet of a dietitian and getting sick uh, from the toothpaste, and then witnessing this completely bewildering thing that is going on between the dietitian and the man who's in her room. Um, and then all of a sudden he throws up and the dietitian realizes that there's someone hiding in her closet. So this is what happens when she's furious to know that she and the other man, that they, the two of them are not alone in the room. When the curtain fled back, he did not look up. When hands dragged him violently out of the vomit, he did not resist. He hung from the hands, limb looking with slack-jawed and glassy idiocy into a face no longer smooth pink and white, surrounded now by wild and disheveled hair, whose smooth bands once made him think of candy, you little rat. The thin, furious voice hissed, you little rat, spine on me, you little nigger bastard. Um, so he's not been, Joe has not really been in this orphanage where all of this is happening. He has not been uh, nobody has, I mean, people have suspected there's something maybe a little odd about his racial composition, uh, but nobody actually up to this point, uh, at least nobody from the administration has called him um, black. Um, and it's at this moment uh, when he is the unwitting, involuntary, unintentional, unwitting witness to this uh, scene that is unfolding in the dietitian's room that that adjective is thrown at him. And everything about the description is that he's hanging from the, he's hanging from the hands of the dietitian. Um, he's witnessing a face that is completely transformed. He's the recipient of that hiss that is coming at him, almost 
complete passivity on his side. So that he really is the template on which the dietitian is writing her own theory and her own story. One more example, uh, and this is his relation to his, um, to his adopted father, uh, Makishan. Um, we have various ways to pronounce that name. I'm just going to pronounce it Makishan. You can pronounce it any way you want. Um, then the boy stood, his trousers collapsed about his feet, his legs revealed beneath his brief shirt. He stood slight and erect. When the strap fell, he did not flinch. No quiver passed over his face. He was looking straight ahead with a rapt, calm expression, like a monk in a picture. Right. So once again, this is not the kind of uncontrolled violence that is coming from a dietitian, but the very disciplined violence um, that is coming from his own uh, foster father, adopted father. Um, but no matter what kind of violence, it can be either out of control or being totally controlled, he is just there like a saint, like a monk, uh, just totally calm, um, un seemingly untouched by that violence. And that's part of the interesting fact about, um, about, about Joe Christmas as well. It's almost as if there's so little, um, uh, so, so little contents to him, uh, although I hesitate to say that because that doesn't seem quite right either. But whatever it is that is lacking in him, there's no lashing out from him. Um, even the killing is not really, a, doesn't seem to be a kind of a lashing out um, at the way he's treated. Um, so um, th there seems to be just a kind of a, you know, as blank a slate as possible. Uh, although he's probably not as blank a slate as, 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 as Lena is. It's, a lot more contents than Lena, but still a relatively blank slate on which various a succession of characters uh, would write their own very, very dramatic stories. So this is the structure, and that's why there's this very deep kinship between the two of them, even though they are totally different. <laughs>